Welcome to Veteran Voices, a podcast dedicated to giving a voice to those that have served in the United States Armed Forces. On this series, jointly presented by Supply Chain Now and Vets2 Industry, we sit down with a wide variety of veterans and veteran advocates to gain their insights, perspective, and stories from serving. We talk with many individuals about their challenging transition from active duty to the private sector, and we discuss some of the most vital issues facing veterans today. Join us for this episode of Veteran Voices. Hey, good morning, everybody. Scott Luton with Veteran Voices. Uh, thanks for joining us on this special episode here today. So today we've got uh, a conversation teed up focused on a West Point graduate turned Army officer turned half-powered defense attorney. So stay tuned for what's going to be a great conversation. A quick programming note before we get started. This program is part of our Supply Chain Now family of programming. Today's show is conducted in partnership with our friends at Vets2 Industry. So check out what this powerful nonprofit is doing, serving so many folks uh, across the veteran space at Vets, the numeral two, industry.org. Okay, with no further ado, I want to introduce our guest here today. Joining me here is Brendan Krasinski, U.S. Army veteran and attorney with DLA Piper. Brendan, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Scott? Doing fantastic. Uh, I'm looking forward to our interview. I know uh, there's always so much going on in the fall. And, you know, some of our listeners may know that you're related to one of our team members, but we'll let that cat out of the bag a little later on. It's great to have you here on Veteran Voices. Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You bet. So on the front end, before we get into West Point and what you did in the Army and what you're doing now, let's get to know Brendan Krasinski a little bit better. So where did you grow up, Brendan? So I, I moved around actually quite a bit growing up. I was born in Pittsburgh, lived in Pittsburgh until I was about six. Then we lived in Minneapolis until sixth grade. From Minneapolis, moved to St. Louis for three years. And from St. Louis, moved to New Jersey for my last three years in high school. So wow, bumped around a little bit. Yep. So, so how did that all great cities, what was your favorite yep. out of all those cities? What was your favorite one? I think I, I don't know that I would want to live there today, but as a kid, Minneapolis was fantastic. I mean, it was just, we lived right by some lakes and it was just a great place, kind of the kind of place you could go grow up, run around and just goof off with your friends all day. And I think I would even love it today, but I don't know that I can handle the winters anymore now that I've been in Georgia for, for almost 30 years. <laughs> so Oh, you've been here 30 years. Okay. Well, close um, to it. Close yeah. to it. So were your parents or were they in the military? What, what, what prompted all the moving around? My dad just worked for, well, he started out at a company in Pittsburgh, just took an opportunity. I mean, my dad was just one of these guys that he grew up in, in sort of steel mill, Pennsylvania. He was the first in his family to actually go to graduate college. And so for him, jobs were an opportunity and he would, anytime there was a better opportunity that came along, he would jump at it and we would move. So that was sort of it. Love it. You know, those experiences of going into new towns, making new friends and, and doing that repeatedly, did it have a big impact on who you are now? I think it, I think it did. You know, after it's hard for me to, I don't really have anything to compare it to, but I just do know that every, you know, moving around every few years, meeting new people, always having to make new friends growing up. I, I don't think making friends was never really a problem that I had. I just, I was able to sort of latch onto folks and try to fit in as best I could. And, and, and I do think that that had a lot to do with it. It's just, mm. and so I think even in social situations today, I can fake it pretty well. <laughs> so, 
so I, I can sort of move around and try to figure out how to connect with folks and talk to folks. So I love it. I love it. Okay. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit in a moment about what you do as a defense attorney, but before that, any, you know, of those wonderful cities that you rolled out and, and some of your adventures as a kid, or maybe even after, you know, after you got out of high school, give us an anecdote or two about, you know, what you did, what'd you do for fun? Uh, what was important to you growing up? Yeah. So, so for me, sports was always a huge part of my life. I played sports as far back as I can really remember. And in a way, you know, it's probably because it was the easiest way to make new friends, right? I'd moved to a new school. First thing I would do is figure out what sport am I going to join? And, 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 you know, anyone who's ever been on any sort of team before, that's the quickest way to make friends. That was a big part of my life growing up. I probably, I've tried about every sport from water polo, pole vaulting, swimming, diving, Wow. Soccer, football, baseball, and and finally settled on lacrosse, which is which is what got me. I, I say it's the only reason I got into West Point. <laughs> so, so you're quite. You must have been quite a lacrosse player. You, you know, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. I, I was I was a pretty good athlete, but I started very late. Lacrosse is one of those sports that. So I started my sophomore year in high school, and um, at least. I'm sure it's still the case today. Kids, kids start really young. I think I benefited from being on a really great high school team with a lot of great players. And, and actually we had 90, 90 kids in my high school graduating class. And three of us got recruited, actually four of us got recruited too, and ended up going to West Point in the same year. Wow. So, so I, I think I was, I, I could, I don't know. I don't want to sell myself short too short, but, but I sometimes feel like maybe I was part of a package deal. <laughs> Well, okay. So we're going to get to West Point in a second. Let's, you know, I, I bet a lot of non-practicing attorneys, television attorneys, perhaps think they know what a defense attorney does. And I got to tell you, you know, growing up in the eighties, my grandparents watched Matlock, you know, they were, we, they were, they, and we were all big Andy Griffith fans. So I've watched mm-hmm. every episode and I only bring that up in jest, but what, you know, what, what's one thing about being a defense attorney that might surprise folks? You don't end up in court a whole lot. <laughs> most of most of your time is spent in an office pouring through documents, writing briefs, a lot of a lot of the formal stuff that just they you know no one would be people would be out of their mind if they made a TV show about it's um, there there are moments where you get to court but the vast majority of it is it's a very it's a very detail oriented job that that requires a ton, like way more reading than I ever thought but it's 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 still fun in its own way. Yeah. Uh, it's just not, it's not Matlock. <laughs> it's not Matlock. So that, so you're saying that the better ones are able to stay out of court, right? Cause the work is done kind of behind the scenes, negotiating or researching or what have you. Is that right? No, I mean, I don't, sometimes you just can't avoid it. I mean, it, look, it, it, the, by and large, the other thing probably people don't realize is that most cases don't go to court. Most settle before. And that's on both sides. There are some big ones that do, but, but by and large trials are, you know, actually, going to trial, you see more of those on a week on reruns and TV than some careers see some lawyers see in their career. Oh, wow. Okay, man. Well, I appreciate you share, shedding some light on that and, and dispelling sure. some of the notions. Let's go to West Point again. So, so okay. you said you were recruited to West Point lacrosse. They recruited, it sounds like three or four of y'all that package deal. What was that? Did you, did you know what you were getting into in terms of that, that West coast, you know, military school environment? I had a, I had a pretty good idea. We, there was a, there was a guy a few years ahead of us 
two years ahead of us that was already there. He was playing lacrosse as well. My grandfather went there, so I grew up with sto- with some stories, although, you know, he was really the only one. It's not like it was a family tradition. I think a lot of folks were a little surprised that I went. But I, look, nobody goes there and isn't somewhat taken aback by the experience. I mean, it's a, it's a huge life change for a 17-year-old you know, kid out of New Jersey who used to run around just goofing off half the time. So I don't want to say that I wasn't prepared for it, but I, you know, I was as prepared for it as anyone can be, but Mm. but there's just a lot. You just, you never quite know what to expect until you get there. Right. And, and you experience it. All right. So when you look, think back of your years there at West Point, what are some of the the stories that are still with you to this day? It It may even make you chuckle a bit. I'm trying to think of a few. Well, so the, the one, I'll just tell you the one that my wife finds both heartbreaking and funny. Um, she doesn't quite understand how it worked there, but we were, we were at a, uh, you know, your first summer there, you don't eat a lot. You don't eat a lot at all. And everybody loses weight. Uh, I mean, I went in there maybe 165 pounds wet and I got down to about 150 inside of the first three weeks. And that was pretty standard. But when we got there, there was sort of this big push about but they really monitoring to make sure that we weren't being hazed or abused or whatever and make sure we we're eating right. And we would do regular weigh-ins and everybody had lost a ton of weight. And so the upperclassmen that summer came to all of us and said, look, whatever you say, make sure that you tell the officer who comes through that you're getting enough to eat, that you think you're just losing weight because of the exercise, you know, kind of making excuses. But the truth is we never ate. We didn't eat hardly at all. And so at our, in our hall, we were all lined up and they were going down the line. The officer came and was asking us all, Hey, why did you lose? Why see you lost 10 pounds? Why do you think you lost weight? And everybody, I mean, surely they had to know what was going on because everyone gave the same answer. I, I feel like I'm losing weight because I'm exercising more and I'm eating healthier. Well, they got to my classmate and friend, Dave Polarski, who, uh, who said, I, I think I lost weight because I'm not eating enough. And, and the officer gave about two or three chances to, change his answer and he stuck with it and kept saying, no, I, I just don't think I'm eating enough, sir. So for the rest of the week, while the, while we all, we all got our little tiny portions that we got to look at the whole meal, all the leftovers went down to Dave Polarski at the end of the table who had to eat with a big serving spoon while we all watched him. So the next way and the next way, and he, he finally came around and he told the officer that he felt like he was getting plenty to eat and was just losing weight because of the exercise. So <laughs> that sounds like a little bit of a, a little cool hand Luke feel to it. I can't remember that. There, there's that one scene where they're all, I can eat 50 eggs. <laughs> no, that definitely that that's a good one. Yeah. That is a, uh, one of my favorite parts of that movie, but well, so it sounds like, so Dave Polarski, do, y- do y'all still, yeah. you know, and your, your fellow West Point uh, alums, do y'all stay in touch? We do. So, I mean, I haven't spoken to Dave and it's been a little while directly, but we have a very, very close class and we just had a reunion not long ago. It's, uh, but our class, we have a fantastic, uh, we have a fantastic class president and leadership team, Brandy Bryant Peasley. I'm going to give her a shout out here. If you want to talk to somebody about you know, I, I, I don't, I think she actually is, is still in back in, but she's just done an amazing job keeping our class together and tight. And, and I think so. And that thanks to social media, particularly Facebook. I mean, I, I think of the 1100 classmates we have that graduated, we've got about 700 of them on a, on a class page on Facebook that we all stay in touch on. That's awesome. So it's, it's, you know, a lot of people like to knock social media and of course there's plenty to criticize, but for that, I mean, I think it's been invaluable. <laughs> 
I agree with you. I completely agree with you. So when you graduated, how does it work? Are you, I didn't go to military school and I know that there's, there are non-service academies that don't necessarily have a contract to come with them, like the Citadel and maybe VMI, but how does, how does the whole West Point graduate and then serve? How does that work? So West Point is actually, you, when you join, you're technically, I don't know what your rank is. It's something described in like the uniform code of, I don't know if it's something defined in law, but you are actually technically some lesser weird rank of um, maybe cadet, but you're active duty army and you're actually getting paid and you go there. Uh, it's a four-year degree. Everybody graduates with a, with a bachelor of science degree. And you have essentially the first two years to decide if you want to quit. If you, the, the moment you step foot into your class, your first day, your junior year, you're locked in and you owe however many years um, of service after you graduate. So for my year, it was five years. It, it kind of fluctuates somewhere between, I think, five and six or maybe four and six, just depending on sort of where we are in the world. But um, so everyone that graduates from West Point uh, has to serve some number of years in the you know active duty and then followed up with some usually in for me, it was inactive reserve time. So I was still on a list. They could have called me up. They never did. So but nevertheless, so that's how it works for West Point and Naval Academy, Air Force Academy. I'm sure I'm missing one. Coast Guard Academy is probably yep. the same way. But that, so for all of the federal United States Naval Academy, Military Academy, everybody has an obligation to serve. Gotcha. So, so what did you do after you graduated? You know, you get to, you sort of get to pick uh, based on your class rank, what you want to do. First, you pick really? what job you want to do. Yep. First, you pick what job you want to do. And it's really in rank order. You, they, they sort of go down the list and, and, and then, and then within that branch with whatever job you're going to get. So for me, I chose infantry. Then all of us infantry guys got in a room together and they had all your places that you could be stationed up on at the time. It was like, what do we call an Elmo now? Like one of those trans, you know, essentially like a, a little presentation thing and all the places up there with the number of slots available. And we just kind of went down in class order and everyone got to pick. So I ended up infantry officer that and select and chose Fort Stewart to go to Fort Stewart for a couple of reasons <laughs> in, in Georgia, right? In Savannah. Yeah. yeah. That, well, not in Savannah. It's in, it's right outside. It's right next to Hinesville, Georgia. Hinesville. It was close enough to Savannah for me. That, that was sort of my goal. I wanted to get to four years at West Point, maybe think, gosh, I think I'd like to be somewhere that's actually fun to be for a little bit. <laughs> so I had that, but then you have to do all your training. So when showed up right after graduation, you, we, I think I got like 30 or 40 days paid leave. Went down to Fort Benning for air, you know, jump train, jump school, jumping out of planes. Then the infantry officer basic course, another mechanized infantry leader course to sort of learn the equipment for the job that I was going to do. And then, uh, and then went to Ranger School. And then after graduating from Ranger School, reported to Fort Stewart and was there for the next three, three and a half years. So, man, so <clears throat> did Ranger School make West Point look like a piece of cake? I, I always, I often kind of think about that. I mean, I think they're just different. It's. Um, I think West Point was good preparation for Ranger School in a way because it's just both experiences can be really miserable at times. <laughs> just get you used to being miserable. <laughs> I think the difference is the misery at West Point is spread out over four years, and in Ranger School they they crunched it all into seventy five days. So, <laughs> so it's more intense, but at least the, the 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 light at the end of the tunnel is sort of coming more quickly. <laughs> 
So from a, a time frame standpoint, uh, and bear with me, this is the, the season of head colds right now. Uh, it's yeah, sign, yeah, I think no sinus worries. infection. I'm about an octave lower than I typically am. <laughs> so from a for a reference point, time frame, what year did you graduate West Point? Graduated in 19, graduated in 94, and then went to Fort Benning. So May of 94, graduated, reported down to uh, Fort Benning in July of 94, and was there until did I graduate Ranger School June of '95? So then from June '95, I think I took two weeks off and then reported over to Fort Stewart. Wow. Okay. So what? Um, I want to say from there, was it six years you spent in the U.S. Army? Is that right? It was six total. So from '94, I went. I you know got out in May of '94, and then. I think finished up and finally got out, submit all my paperwork in June or July of 2000. So. Gotcha. And so army officer, ranger. Yep. What, yep. what places did you see? what did you do while you're during that six years? So went to Kuwait twice. One time was roughly a little bit shy of six months. The next time was, I don't remember how long we were there, January, February, mm-hmm. March, April, four or five months. And, and finally got to come home only because I was uh, being reassigned to a different duty station. Mm. And then in the middle of that, I went to, you know, we did some training out in California a few times. There's Fort Irwin National Training Center where you basically go play big war games with tanks and stuff. Did that a couple times and, um, and went over to Egypt for a joint training exercise with a, 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 a you know, bunch of different countries. I mean, e- Egypt, France, Germany. Uh, England. It was sort of this, you know, honestly, I don't quite know what the point was. I'm sure it was um, as much about, you know, relationship and and nation building with other countries as it was anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was, it was neat. So, so in Kuwait, I spent a little bit of time, not long, 45 days at uh, Al Jabbar. I think it was the name of it. Okay. Were you there or were you in Doha or what? Well, so we showed up uh, the first time I went there was as a platoon leader. So we showed up, arrived in the middle of the night. They bust us or trucked us. I don't remember how we got there, but we went over to Doha, literally picked up our vehicles and drove off into the night to go set up in the desert. And we were just set up in the desert for about, I don't remember, it was three or four months. And then they finally took us back to Doha. Wow. Didn't, didn't know when we were leaving, but but knew that we'd spent enough time in the desert. So we, we sort of <laughs> stuck around cleaning vehicles and repairing vehicles, it seemed like forever, until they finally let us come home. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about some of the folks you served with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we never have enough time during these segments of interviews because I, I know there's yeah. dozens and dozens of people that probably were special to you uh, while you were serving. But when, when you think of a couple of those names, uh, yeah. who were some of those folks that were special? Well, like you say, there's a, there are a ton of folks. I mean, even to this day, my best friends in the world are all still in the army or, or from the army, not in the army. Um, I don't think any of them are, but I still stay in touch with, uh, you know, all my best friends. Allie's godfather is my roommate from the army. You know, we've got, a, but, but the, there's two people that, I, that probably had the biggest influence on me when I was in the army. One was uh, my, my he wasn't my first company commander. My first company commander got relieved because he was uh, kind of a disaster. But, but the guy that took over for him was a guy ca- captain at the time. I know he's out now. He's working. Uh, last I talked to him, he was at Cintas, but his name was Larry Lewis. And, and he was just one of these guys that I don't quite know how to put my finger on it with him, but he was, he, he, you knew he was in charge, 
but he didn't have to tell you he was in charge and just everything he made you want to do what's right. And you could tell when you disappointed him and he never chew you out or, or he didn't have to tell you that, that you did something that was wrong. Um, he was just a really, really great guy that just cared about everybody was a phenomenal leader. I, I kind of saw him as someone who would stay in forever and do great things. And unfortunately, well, I don't want to say unfortunately, but he, like me, I think made the same decision that for family life, you know, army wasn't his thing. So, so Larry Lewis was, was again, my, my, the, one of my company commanders as a young Lieutenant, just a phenomenal leader, great guy. Um, and then the second guy is, so I spent my last two years in the army up in Dahlonega, Georgia at, at the fifth Ranger training brigade. So as an instructor and various other jobs at Ranger school. And my, uh, first Sergeant was a guy named Tom, Tom Wilburn. And people can Google him and look him up. He's on the air. I mean, he's, he's made it in the Ranger Hall of Fame. He's won the best Ranger competition a few times. And, uh, you know, he was just one, again, he was an NCO and I was an officer, but it, it, no one ever sort of took the I'm the officer, you're the NCO position with Tom Wilburn, uh, because he was just the most impressive human being I think I've ever met. Wow. Incredibly smart. He, he was at the time, I thought he was old. He was probably in his late thirties and I was in my young twenties. Now to me, that's a baby, but the, the story, a couple of stories I remember about him was, um, first of all, he was just also great with, with the guys. I mean, just everything he did, he was proficient at every single thing he did. He was just amazing at everything from shooting to, to, to climbing to whatever, you name it. Um, he, he did it all. Uh, but he was also just, the, the probably the toughest guy I've ever met. Wow. And he had served in the Ranger school was his, uh, was his break from the regular army. When he wasn't at Ranger school, he was serving in some of our more elite forces that sometimes, you know, you don't really hear much about. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but one of the stories that still blows my mind to this day is he went and had a surgery down at Fort Benning to repair a hernia or something like that. And came back the next day, you know, with an incision in his thigh and some stitches and said, hey, come on, guys, we're going to go do a 10 mile run through the mountains. And we were like, what is he talking about? <laughs> sure enough, we started running and, and about a mile in, um, his stitches popped. And, and I went up to him and said, hey, first sergeant, it looks like you, your stitches are open. You're bleeding down your leg. And he said, oh, it's all right, sir. I've had worse. <laughs> <laughs> but But he, again, just he's the kind of guy that could get up every time, every year when we were there, we would do a uh, sort of an open house and let people come in. And, and he was always the guy that they would put up in front of them, not the battalion commander, not anyone else. They'd put him up in front to sort of give, you know, tell people about the, the what's going on and the Rangers. Wow. And uh, he's just a super impressive guy. So that was Tom Wilbur, right? Tom Wilbur. Yep. Yep. Well, U S Ranger he, uh... Hall of Fame. Oh, really? I think he's still up in Georgia today. I know he got out and he was doing some, some government jobs that I don't know if it's contracting or what, but, yeah. um, but I know he, he eventually got out. I mean, you know, uh, so. so let me ask you, uh, I want to talk about your transition here in a second, but okay. when it comes to special forces and, you know, ranger training, if you think of all, all the folks that are, are uh, trained for those really special, oftentimes, confidential missions, secret missions, the mindset, 
what do you think, what, what's one thing about the mindset that is enables folks to endure more, to do more, to accomplish more, to be trusted more? What, what, what is ingrained in that mindset? That's a good question. I mean, first of all, I will say that I, I was never entrusted with any super secret missions. I was just more of a standard guy who, who happened by training to work with some guys that, that did do that. So to some extent, um, but, but, you know, we can just take a, 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 an experience like Ranger School where it's just miserable and it's, it's really, it's, it's tough. I mean, it's, I mean, I think the one common thread throughout my time in the infantry and these guys that I work with is just the, the, the folks that are there want to be there. They just have a desire to prove themselves. And that's that's sort of one aspect of it. I mean, everybody's sort of type A, loves the challenge, and so they go about it that way. But inevitably, everybody gets to a point where it's just tough. And then I guess this part of your question is, well, what, what do I think it is that makes folks go on? I think it's a combination of the same thing, of just sort of this toughness, not ever, you know, being the kind of guy that never quit or gal. Part of what makes it... Uh, I think bearable, I'll give credit to Ted Lasso here, is to some extent, you just got to be a goldfish (laughs) and not, you know, just kind of think about what's in front of you and not worry about, you know, what's, what's two days ahead of you, but focus on what's immediately in front of you and just sort of Mm. one step at a time and keep going. Know that, that just, that's what you have to do if you're going to finish what you set out to do. So uh, that's that's my thought. It's great advice. Uh, You know, as an entrepreneur, you know, you got the good days, you got the bad days, you got all the days in between. You got the really, you got some really heavy days, and you got then you got some light days where maybe production's not as heavy or, or problem solving or negotiating, whatever it is. And a buddy of mine years ago, and I'm not, if I remember his name here in a minute, but anyway, he 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 gave a really piece, simple piece of advice. He's like Scott, you know, Lou Holtz writes in his book. You, know, you get up in the morning. What's the next, what, what's, the, what's the most important thing to do? You do it and then you stop and call timeout and you ask yourself, what's the most important thing to do right now? And it's just, a, a, you know, in those tough days, just prioritizing and, and focusing on that one thing, kind of like what you're talking about. That has, it sounds simple. It sounds mindless. It sounds, well, that's just, it's, it's, it's uh, common sense. But man, on those heavy days, that has really uh, fomented the right mindset. And you're saying Ted, uh, Ted Lasso has, a, I guess, a goldfish principle. Well, uh, it's it's yeah, it's uh, you know, when a soccer player, I, I can't remember the exact context. I remember he said it though, but essentially it was like soccer player gets in a, you know, they lose a game, and sort of how do you get over it? Well, you be a goldfish because goldfish don't remember two minutes ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you just That's forget the, about it, move on is really right. The the point. I love it. But, um, you know, to, to your point, I mean, what you just said is, I, I think it's exactly the same. I think it's exactly the same whether you're in the army or whether you're in business or or whether it's West. Point of ranger school look if you show up on day one of, of ranger school or day one of west point you think gosh i have 76 days of this to go or at west point i have four years of this or I, I don't care what it is if you're in you know at the tail end of your first day at a trial and you just turned in 20 hours and you get two more you get two hours to sleep before you have to get up and do it again if you sit there and think this is going to be six weeks of this uh, right. it starts oh it starts becoming overwhelming but so <laughs> you're right uh, the proverbial bites the elephant, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Uh, let's talk about your transition out of the army. And as we were talking pre-show for a minute, yeah. you know, that transition is probably the biggest common thread 
and theme anytime, yeah. whether I have a, a podcast interview with a veteran or when we're getting together informally. Uh, and if it's yeah. not about our transition, it's, it's, it's talking about others that are, you know, that are either challenged by it or, or, uh, you name it. It's just, it seems to be an, a challenge that we just can't quite, um, solve, uh, from a variety of angles, whether it's the certain, the branches themselves, the private sector, the veteran, you know, him or herself, right. Cause, cause it's our personal mm-hmm. responsibility or whatever it is. Let's talk about your transition and what you experienced. How, how did that work? You know, I, I'll just confess my, my, transition was not very deliberate. It was my oldest daughter was about two years old. I had had, you know, I'd been deployed a few times. This is even before 9-11. And I knew just with what I was doing, I was going to continue to be gone a lot and just sort of made the decision that that's not how I wanted to raise a family. A lot of folks do, and and God bless them for it. And I'm thankful right. there's folks that'll do it. It's just, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of what I wanted. I mean, um, so I just sort of lucked into my initial transitions. I don't even think it's a transition because it didn't work out well. <laughs> I mean, I don't say it didn't work out well. It's just not what I wanted. Um, right. I had a friend of mine when I when I decided I was getting out. He he found out and he reached out to me. I didn't even have to look for a job. He reached out to me and said, "Look, I'm wow. I'm managing this office uh, for for this financial advisor big." major financial advisory firm down in Charleston, South Carolina, any interest in working as a financial advisor? And I said, sure, that sounds pretty great. I think in my mind that the job was uh, more of more of an advisory role, less of a sales role. And the reality is it was a sales role. All right. And and I, I think I was sort of geared more towards I wanted to be a problem solver, not just a not just a rainmaker. Um, and so I got there and it was, it was, you know, and a lot of that's my fault. I mean, right. If we're going to start talking about transitions and, and, you know, how to make a smooth transition, I think one lesson that I would tell anybody from that is really look at what it is that your opportunities are. Think about truly if it's an opportunity you think you would actually enjoy, or if it just kind of sounds cool. Like for me, I think being a financial advisor, living in Charleston sounded cool. The reality of it was less of that than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> so, but, but about, a, and, and I realized less than a year in, it's not what I wanted to do with my life. And I'd always wanted to be a lawyer. I'd always thought about it. I was a pre-law major at West Point. <laughs> and so, but, but at the time I had a daughter, we had, we had a second daughter in South Carolina. So, so I kind of, for myself, I thought it was absolutely stupid to, go back for a graduate degree with a, with a wife and two kids, but my, you know, credit to her, my, my ex-wife, she just knew I was miserable and said, what is it that you want to do? And I said, Mm. well, I'd really like to go to law school. I just don't know how I can. She just said, well, just do it. We'll figure it out. So, so really that's where my transition really happened is, is, is then I went to law school and transitioned out. And I will say, I think that the transition is a very different process, you know, if you're going to get out and go to a professional school, uh, right. because then, then it's sort of, you're graduating with, with all the same experiences, everybody else applying to the same jobs. And uh, so it's a little bit easier. And, and at the time, at least, and I still think today, you know, the military surely opened a lot of doors for interviews. So that was, that was sort of my transition experience. Um, it yep. was a little, not like what most people go through. 
you know, where they're, yep. tip, they're, they're applying to a bunch of different jobs and, but that, going that's, into that's the, how it worked for me. Going into the recruiting abyss and not getting callbacks yeah. and, and yeah. having the, 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 uh, language barriers of trying to, you know, uh, share what you did to military with folks that, you know, ha- hadn't served. Um, but I'll tell you what's really cool about your, even if it is uh, non-traditional is how many folks actually get the, uh, after they experience something they know they don't want to do, how many folks actually listen to the great advice you got? What do you want to do? And let's go do it. You know, so many folks I feel are, they find any reason in the world not to do what they really want to do. And and look at you now, yeah. you know, sit back and you blast them because, because you're doing in life what you want to do. Right. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, it's such a strange thing to think back to 29, 28. I don't know how old I was, Brendan thinking <laughs> I, I'm so far down the road in my life. How can I possibly shift gears now? But at 49, I look back, I wish I was 29 again (laughs) and, uh, and, you know, wouldn't even hesitate, but no, you're right. I mean, I I think for anyone out there, um, first step in a successful transition from the military to civilian life would be figure out what does you want to do and then Mm. figure out how to make it happen. And whether that's making phone calls to people or, you know, networking or, you know, who cares what it is in the long run, it'll pay off big time. Excellent point. And I'm glad that, that you shared that because that's one of the things we wanted to, to pick your brain on. If you had a you know room full of folks that were, that were um, you know, about to start their transition or transitioning already, whatever it is, you know, that advice you'd give them, you've already uh, dropped uh, a few aspects there. What else, anything else you'd share to a room full of, of veterans that were, you know, fighting through their transition? Yeah. So you sort of touched on it earlier. One of the big things that I see, look, we, we hire a lot of veterans and and it's a little different in the legal industry, but I see a lot of resumes. Sometimes classmates will say, Hey, can you look at my resume and and tell me what you think? This is sort of the the job I'm going for, you know, folks who've recently retired. And I think if if I can give folks the, the sort of the number one piece of advice to just to sort of stand out and, and to, um, I don't know if it's to stand out, but but one thing that I see a lot of is resumes that make sense to me because I was in the military or maybe they don't because it might be in the Navy. I have no idea what impressive things this, I'm, I'm sure that these people did really impressive things and being in charge of the JSOC and the S3 shop and all that kind of stuff is is for folks in the know, really impressive. But But folks that don't know, when they're looking at a resume like that, it just, they have no idea what that means. So sort of number one piece of advice is I would give anyone in the army or, or getting out of the military is put together your resume, read it, and, and really focus on translating it so that your mom would understand. Make sure that instead of being in charge of a 300 person unit in the whatever infantry branch is, just, just say was in charge of, you know, managed all ask, you know, managed all training and operations of a 300 person unit. You know, you don't need it. The details are sort of less important than the big picture. Managed a budget of $2 million. Um, doesn't matter that it was for training and for, for deployments or for whatever it right. was. It's just as an employer, if you were in charge, if you sort of had overall responsibility for managing or implementing, you know, a $2 million budget, that that's, 
that's a big thing. Um, So simplify it is sort of, that's kind of the advice I give all my friends. Look, simplify your resume so that your mom would understand it and then give it to your mom and make sure she does. (laughs) And, and let's shy away from eight page resumes, especially to your point, you know, that you you can roll those things up into one bullet point instead of, you know, one bullet point and 17 uh, sub points. So uh, really great advice there. And I think one thing, not to put words in your mouth, but, but you alluded to to a, a point a couple of times now is, um, you know, you own your transition, right? No one's going to do it for you. Yeah. No one owes you a job. You got to own it. And at times that's in, includes in embracing the suck as the phrase goes, uh, cause yeah. there's parts of it that that's stink. But, uh, if you own it and if you start early, I think, I think lead time is such, I know in my transition, I did not take advantage of the lead time. And it's so important to, um, you know, heck, just for following your advice to, to figure out what you want to do, you know, research and, and kind of figuring it out takes time alone, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think one thing you can do, sort of another piece of advice is if you're thinking that you want to get into a particular industry, f- find someone in that industry and just say, listen, I'm, I'm transitioning out of the military. I, I'm, I, I think that what you do is what I would love to be doing. Uh, but honestly, I'd love to sort of hear more about it and see if, if, if that's really the case. And, you know, do you want to grab coffee? I, people are, most people are willing to help. And, and especially right. if you reach out to me or probably anybody and say, listen, I'm transitioning out of the military. I'd love, I'm thinking about going to law school. Do you have time for a cup of coffee? Well, you know, I'm going to say, heck, let's go grab lunch. Don't hesitate because number one, it helps you learn if it's really what you want to do, because I will tell you, you asked one thing that would surprise you about being a lawyer. Well, one thing that surprises a lot of people is it's not at all what they think it is. And so that's Mm -hmm. why there's a lot of my classmates from law school who aren't lawyers anymore. And if they didn't just go straight to law school because they didn't know what else to do after college and instead spent a little time working at a law firm or, or talking with actual lawyers, they might've realized, gosh, I think I'd rather be doing something else. So right. use that time to figure, use that time to figure out if it's really what you want to do. And, and then those people aren't going to forget you. You know, if, if, if you go to lunch and even say like, Hey, anybody else you think I should talk to use that as an opportunity to network that'll, that'll ultimately help you. And I'm not, I'm obviously using the law as a, as an example, but um, right. you know, if, if you're interested in becoming a store manager for Home Depot, Heck, man, reach out to go on LinkedIn, find someone who's in your area. And say, I'd love to talk to you about what you do. Right. That's great advice. Excellent advice. Cause, cause they will, um, they will respond and a lot of folks want to help. It's, it's part of the humanity in all of us. All right. So as we start to wrap, kind of come down to home stretch, there's, there's a couple, just a couple more questions I want to ask you. So DLA Piper is, is your uh, law firm you're part of now. So, so share a little bit more in, uh, about what the firm does, maybe what you do. So, well, DLA Piper is a, is a, is a huge firm. It's, a, it's, it's where we have offices worldwide. Um, I think we're over a thousand or 2000 attorneys at this point. I don't know the exact number. Um, really most handles almost any aspect of, of whatever legal work you, you might have. I mean, our firm recently um, worked with, with, with some of the manufacturers of the virus to help navigate the regulates or not virus, the, the, uh, the vaccines help mm-hmm. them re- re- navigate the regulatory process. 
Um, I, you know, we represent a lot of corporations, big corporations, when they're sued for various, um, various things. I mean, that's typically what I, what I do is I got brought over to be part of the team that represents pharmaceutical companies and medical device manufacturers when they're, when they're sort of sued by these, uh, you know, by individuals, but also even within our own office here in Atlanta, we've got a lot of guys that that work with we've got a couple of guys that work with startup companies as they're trying to generate you know raise venture capital to, to huh. seed money and stuff like that. Um, we have other folks that just help with the more standard corporate structures of companies and things like that. So really, that the firm does just about everything. My focus has been for the last for my entire 15, 16 year career now, um, litigation. So it's it's defending companies that find themselves being sued for various reasons. And, and typically my, the cases I work on are, it's, I, I don't do, uh, not that I haven't, but my, my focus has been on sort of the, your product injured me type of claim, as opposed to two businesses in a dispute over trademark or anything like that. So. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Man, a little bit of everything there. Uh, huge firm, a couple thousand attorneys, global offices. Uh, and I'm sure very busy. So I want to be very res- respective of your time here today. Sure. So one final, so I, we're going to ask in a minute, make sure folks know how to connect with you uh, based on anything you shared here today. Folks may want to pick your brain, but I won't let the cat out of the bag. You mentioned Allie earlier. I kind of teased on the front end. So Allie Krasinski is a, is a part of our, our uh, leader with our marketing team here at Supply Chain Now. I'll tell you, she is uh, a phenomenal uh, team member. She is, uh, her work ethic. I'm not sure where, if who she got it from might be you, the family, you name it, (laughs) the ideas she brings to the table. I don't think I've ever seen her, Brendan. She's a very, always positive. I mean, (laughs) I'm still convinced that even if she got some really bad news, you'd never know it. So if there's anything that, um, maybe has that you've rubbed off on her that, that, uh, either we're not picking up on yet or something for us to look for. What, what are you most proud of there? You know, Allie is, uh, she, she's my first, but, and they're all, all I'm lucky. I got three really good girls and a great stepson. Um, and they're all fantastic in their own way. One thing about Allie that, that makes me proud is she's just, she's always, you mentioned hardworking. She's always been a hard worker. She, I don't know if she, uh, you guys have, have gotten to her telling you stories about her horse riding in the past, but she, she wanted to ride horses as a little girl. Her mom and I took her to ride horses and figured we'd be done after a couple lessons. And she stuck with it through high school and even competitively. Well, horse riding is very expensive. And even though I'm a lawyer, I'm not that much of a lawyer. <laughs> so what Allie would do is she would spend all day Saturday and all day Sunday going to, I would drop her off at about seven in the morning, pick her up at six or seven in the afternoon. I'm talking when she was eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. And she would muck out stalls and work all day just to get a couple extra hours of, of time with the horse for free and horse wow. lessons. And that has never stopped. I'll, Saturday morning, I'll wake up at seven in the morning and Allie's waking up, you know, Allie's down in the kitchen already. And I'm like, Allie, what do you, this was back when she was in college. Allie, what are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm going to help somebody organize their basement. I mean, just, you know, she's just got a phenomenal work ethic and where that came from. I, she always, she just, she just had it. She just always had it. I, I wish I could take credit for it. <laughs> well, it, it is such a, a dominant part of, of who she is. Big heart, lots of great ideas. Uh, and really, just a pleasure 
to work with. So, um, all right. And, and of course, Sally helped us facilitate meeting you and interviewing you here today and really appreciate that as well. Okay. So final question for you, uh, based on everything you've shared and, and what you do for a living, if folks wanted to, to connect with you, what's the easiest way to do that? So I'm on LinkedIn, Brendan Krasinski. I imagine I'm the only Brendan Krasinski on <laughs> LinkedIn, but Brendan Krasinski, DLA Piper, if you, or even just Brendan Krasinski, DLA will find me on Google, but otherwise it's Brendan, B-R-E-N-D-A-N dot Krasinski, K-R-A-S-I-N-S-K-I at at DLAPiper.com. And you're welcome to email and probably the easiest way to get me these days. Wonderful. It's just that easy. Well, hey, really appreciate your time, uh, Brendan. You uh, uh, pleasure meeting with you and hearing some of your stories and certainly hearing your, your POV and, and various aspects of your journey. Uh, thank you so much. So we've been talking with Brendan Krasinski, U.S. Army veteran and attorney with DLA Piper. We'll talk with you soon. Thank you very much, Scott. You bet. Uh, and, and folks, hopefully you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. Lots of, uh, I think, really a lot of practical advice and some great stories. Uh, be sure to find Veteran Voices wherever you get your podcast, subscribe, so you don't miss conversations like this. Hey, be sure to check out our friends over at Vets2 Industry. They've got um, the next networking event will take place after we release this episode. But every every three, four weeks, they put on one of the best networking sessions on a Saturday to help you connect with fellow veterans, hiring managers, you name it, lots of resources. Check them out at vets2industry.org. And on that note, most importantly, folks, enjoy the rest of October. Hopefully, winter weather has kicked in. Uh, on behalf of our entire team here at Veteran Voices, Scott Luton signing off now. Do good, give forward, be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you back right back here at Veteran Voices. Thanks, everybody. Mm-hmm.